0: This is Living Lean, the show that teaches you how to apply the science of nutrition and training to sustainably create your leanest, strongest body and build the most confident version of yourself. I'm your host, Jeremiah Bear. Let's get into the show. All right, what is going on? Welcome back to the show. Today, I'm joined once again by Brian Borstein. Brian, thank you for being here, dude. Amp to be here, man. Excited for our discussion today. So you've been on the podcast before, um, one of our earlier episodes. But just give us a super quick intro on the for the listeners who might not know who you are, might not have listened to that episode. Who you are? What you're up to right now?
1: Totally, yeah. So I started in strength and bodybuilding uh, when I was 15 years old. Trained five by five strength stuff, bro split stuff. After that, at college, founded CrossFit PB in 2010. Did the whole competitive CrossFit thing up through 2000. 2000- 15, 14, 15, um, then kind of got back into the more physique bodybuilding style realm. Um, started a company called Evolved Training Systems where I was meshing CrossFit functional fitness with more bodybuilding physique style stuff. Started another company with Lori Christine King called Paragon Training Methods where we kind of do the same thing, um, began kind of taking the programming a little more towards the physique side and a little less away from the functional fitness side. And that's kind of what I've been doing with my own training as well. And that gets us to the present time.
0: Perfect, man. So even since last time you were on the show, I've seen the way you evolve the stuff you talk about within programming or the way you train the stuff you talk about within programming change up quite a bit. That's really what I wanted to dive into today. And as a whole, I really wanted to be a conversation around strategies for more intermediate to advanced lifters to keep progressing and kind of what you found to be effective but I want to kick you off with this question. So for people that have been training for, let's say four to five plus years, what are the biggest mistakes you see that are kind of holding people back from continuing to progress? Because I think we can both agree that that's really the point where people kind of start to spin their wheels, right? Yeah, totally. So the biggest mistakes in the intermediate stage,
1: I just echoed, did you hear me echo a little bit? No, uh, uh, you sound good over there. Okay, here. cool. All right, sweet. Um, so I think that, not having knowledge of what training hard is, uh, is important, or training too hard. So I think that they're both kind of the same problem in a different way, uh, where you just aren't aware of, of the effort that you're putting in and being able to apply it practically. So, you know, when, when a coach tells you to train one to two reps shy of failure, are you really, you know, four to five reps shy of failure? Or are you really going like to failure and thinking that you still have one or two reps left in the tank. So, you know, understanding that self-awareness and that's something that will absolutely continue to grow and be fostered over time as you move from that intermediate stage into that advanced stage. Um, but I think that within your programming modality, there should probably be some work that takes you to failure so that you can learn where failure is and then therefore create a better gauge of kind of how uh, or where you are when you're shy of failure as well. and I know that's something you're working on too right now and um, okay. I've even seen some videos of you where you're just going along doing <laughs> reps and then suddenly you fail and it's like, right. you know, failure, you don't always see that shit coming. And it's, um, it's different for every type of movement you do too, right? So like on a chest movement, I've had so many people comment, send me DMs and be like, bro, you say you're one to two rep shy of failure but you literally like didn't even slow down your bar speed almost. And that's just how pressing movements are for me. Like I'm just going, going, going. I struggle to lock one out and then I'm like, Oh fuck. I'm one rep from failure. That's it. So yeah. So for pulling movements, I can just go forever. Like you could see me at rep 14 and I'm in my head. I'm like, fuck, this sucks. This is so (laughs) hard. My lats hurt so bad. And then I'm still grinding reps out at like 20
0: or 21. So, um, I think, you know, I, Go ahead. That is so funny to me because I think I'm for me it's like chest. I can just keep grinding that shit out and this reps like a 10 second rep. Okay, another. Yeah. But for me any pulling movement is just like oh shit, okay, there it was. Like that was zero RIR. It's so weird to me. Yeah, we're the opposite, man. We're the opposite. And I kind of think that quads act a
1: little bit more like chest for me where like I can do a squat and you know there's like a momentary slowing at the sticking point and then I know I have like one rep left. Without you know breaking at the hip and doing some shitty contortion right. work, but um, but with hamstrings, um, I feel like I can kind of just continue grinding reps out. So uh, maybe I'm more slow twitch dominant posteriorly and fast twitch dominant anterior side, something like that. But um, that would be probably my my view on mistake number one for intermediates. Um, and then I think that not eating enough food. I think that too many people get stuck in that cycle of wanting to appear lean or wanting to see the work that they've put in manifested. Right. But the truth is that you probably aren't ready to see that shit. Like go put another 10 or 20 pounds on, get really strong and then cut down and see what you have underneath. But trying to cut down when there isn't much there is just going to leave you feeling skinny and soft and weak and you're not going to gain much from that.
0: hundred percent. And you just went through your first diet in like years, Right.
1: Yeah, the last time I it was 2015, and that was for a physique show that I did, uh, which was just a complete disaster. We can go off on that tangent at some point, <laughs> but um, but that was the worst dieting experience I ever had in 2015, What's that? and uh, all right, we'll go into it. So, I was deep in CrossFit at that point, but I... Always felt like I looked better than I performed. Like people are always like, dude, you're so jacked. You must be like the best CrossFitter in the world. And I'm right. like, Yeah, that really doesn't matter <laughs> like, at all. Um so I really I kind of started shifting and training more physique style at that point. And we decided to institute a bodybuilding program into our CrossFit gym. Um kind of a tangent to the CrossFit programming. And I figured I would do a physique show to kind of be the role model for that program. Okay. And I um I did it all myself up until About six weeks out, I cut down to I want to say I was 191 pounds at about six weeks out, something like that. Maybe seven weeks out, and then I decided to hire a coach because I didn't know how to peak for a bodybuilding show. Right. But but nor did I know at that time that there was really much of a difference between someone that was natural and someone that was enhanced in the way that you would prepare for a show. Right. Um, So I hired the local coach at the local gym who was you know 260 pounds and has been on steroids his entire life. Okay. And, um, he just ran me into the ground, dude. I I was doing, uh, I was walking 60 minutes every day. I was doing 30 to 45 minutes of hit interval cardio five days a week. Oh, and me. I was lifting five to six days a week. Damn. So I was literally, I was moving over three hours a day and right. a lot right. of it was really intense. Right. Um, on top of that, he took my calories down to like 2000, 1900, something like that. Okay. And I just became a shell of myself. Like I, I was able to continue going, you know, strictly based on adrenaline right. um, and seeing the end in sight. But the day the show ended, I, I, I literally couldn't even walk up the stairs. I was just demolished, like my whole right. body, my mind, everything. Um, so I had to take two weeks off from the gym just to feel like I had any energy at all. And then, um, another six months of training two to three times a week, full body. And that was what it took for me to recover from that experience. Um, so this time I did it way differently five years later, and I was fully aware of the evidence-based approach to dieting. Right. And, um, and I can honestly say that this was the easiest diet I've ever done. I got within four pounds of where I was at that physique comp, okay. uh, five years prior And I think all things considered, I was probably leaner. So, you know, I put on a little bit of muscle since then. Um, and you know, being leaner and still literally not losing any performance in the gym, um, not having any sleep issues, not having excessive food focus, um, and seeing, you know, legs, uh, muscles in my quads and my hamstrings for probably the first time in my life that, uh, the physique comp that we, that I did was, you know, a men's physique. So I didn't have to show my legs at all. Right. And so I think through all this cardio that this coach had me do, I literally ran my legs away. Like I had no legs left. So I was 180 pounds, but I, I, it was teeny down there. I mean, I I literally had no muscle definition in my legs. I couldn't even (laughs) believe it. I remember um, my first workout back after taking two weeks off and still feeling, you know, like total shit throwing 225 on the bar to try to squat and doing like three reps and being like, fuck that. That was way too hard, you know? Um, and my squat before that was like fuck, 400 or something. So, oh, shit. um, yeah, no, it was really bad. It was really bad. I, um, uh, that was my main, my main reason for why I decided to not do any cardio this diet, because I wanted to see what would happen if I literally just didn't do any cardio and just focused on muscle mass muscle mass right. muscle mass. strength maintaining strength no matter what at any cost and um so i just walked and i lifted and i did maintain or gain strength while being 20 pounds down from where i started
0: so interesting how like differently you can go about a shoe prep like like that you said man you're your last uh getting ready for the competition you could barely walk up the stairs afterwards whereas like this performance was so good it didn't seem like you really saw any adverse effects super interesting i feel like as a whole like i can think of a couple guys right now like one dude just got done with a photo shoot just got fucking ripped another dude that like he's in his peak week right now and neither of them i feel like at in the industry as a whole it's interesting to see like it used to be like okay you got to do your fasted cardio every morning you got to do but like either neither of those guys neither of them did any cardio again just a step goal focusing on nutrition and i feel like when you really hone in on your nutrition it's at least in my experience with people like getting ready for photo shoot preps, it's pretty rare that you actually need to push the cardio that much. If you're going into it, like if it's not like, okay, I'm four, I mean, decided I'm going to do a photo shoot in four weeks and okay, I'm nowhere near ready, right? <clears throat> so I think it's very much like, uh, it's just interesting to see how that's shifted. At least I know for me, because same thing, even like for my first photo shoot, I know I did a lot of cardio. A second one, I didn't do any. It's just interesting to like... <laughs> how much differently you can approach that and get the same result, but like physiologically feel so much different.
1: Completely. Yeah. And I mean, I I know you probably follow Jeff Alberts on Mm -hmm. on Instagram too, right? So Jeff is like just such a cool cat to follow because he does everything in this like really calculated, diligent manner and he gets a lot of shit for the fact that, you know, his last prep was almost a year and I feel like if I were to do that and like knowing what it took for me to get down to 185, and then knowing that I would probably need to go from 185 to 172 or something like that, if I were to actually stand on stage, like I'd probably give myself nine months as well. I mean, I'd want to go, you know, a couple months of dieting and then take a month diet break. And then I'd probably want to sure. keep calories a little higher, maybe have some refeeds in there and, you know, the whole thing. Like, I don't want to rush the process because it's miserable that way. And you have, you definitely have some people that are like, you know, get in, get out, you know, 10 weeks, shed all the fat, and then you're dieting for less time. And I understand that, that mindset as well. I just think that that, that mindset isn't sustainable at least for me. And I think maybe that that comes down to like a personality type and, and what works for you. I tend to align more with the calculated approach that Jeff takes and knowing that he isn't rushing the process versus the pressure that's applied when you're like, okay, I'm fucking, I'm 12 weeks out. Let's go hit the cardio and do all these things and get really lean. And like that can work. But as we saw with my situation the first time, the recovery was really more the issue than actually getting there. And um, this time being able to be recovered,
0: essentially when I got there was really cool. hundred percent, man. I couldn't agree more. And I think when we're talking like the fast versus slow rate of loss, it's so context dependent too. Like you said, like I do have some clients where they'll come on board and it's like, okay, we're going to push this shit quickly. But like, I know from your personality type, like you're very type A, you're most motivated by quick progress. And we're not like, hey, this is a 12 week scramble to a photo shoot, right? Like it's more like, Hey, I want to get lean for the first time ever. And I'm more motivated, but quicker changes. I'm willing to give all the shit up in my lifestyle. Whereas like, like you're saying here, like if it's somebody getting ready for a photo shoot, it's okay. We're going to map out. Like we have X amount of refeeds. We're going to leave two weeks for a diet break. Then on top of that, we're going to leave like another four to six weeks, worst case you're ready early. And then we're going to reverse diet into that. But I think like in that yep. situation, it's pretty dumb and you're probably risking a lot more muscle loss if you're like trying to squeeze it in such a short time frame
1: yeah for sure i mean more hormonal issues as well as muscle loss um and i think it's kind of like what was the analogy i was going to use here hold on one second let me try and retrace my brain on this um I actually don't know where I was going with oh, that, yeah. but I had a really good idea. And then you were talking and I lost my <laughs> mouth. So maybe it'll, back. maybe yeah. it'll come back to me later. Yeah. But Fair either enough. way, like, yeah, it, it is personality type based. And, um, I just know that, Oh, here's what I was going to say is that for, for me having trained 23 years or for Jeff, who had been training 35 years, right. Taking a year to prep is such a small piece of the total pie That it doesn't seem like that long, but somebody that is relatively new to lifting, that's four or five, six years in, that's trying to get cut. They're like, I'm not going to take a year to get lean. Like that's one fifth of the entire time I've been training, you know? So, so for them, it probably doesn't even make sense for them to take that long to get lean because they're just wasting time that they should be gaining because of their, their
0: status, you know? I couldn't agree more, man. And kind of taking it back to, we got a little sidetracked here, but initially, like the conversation was around, you spent a long fucking time focusing on just eating more and building like between diets. And you were mentioning that was one of the biggest mistakes you see people make, which I can definitely speak to. Like I just posted about this yesterday. Like for me, after my first photo shoot, I was like, "Fuck yeah!" like I'm ripped. I want to stay this way, but I also want to get way more jacked. But the problem was like, I'm I'm 6'3", and at the time I was 185. So I was super, super lean. I was like, okay, I'm going to try. I felt like (laughs) shit. My training performance was super low. Libido was low. Everything, like recovery was bad, but it was just like, I want to stay this lean. And I think part of it too, for me was like, I want to make sure I look good for social media, right? Like yeah, it helps helps grow the business, which is a very hard thing, like whole different topic, but it is kind of a hard thing to not be too attached to when like so much of your business is putting your image out there. Um, But like, I know for me, like starting with Steve, one of the things we've done is very a lot more aggressively than i would have on my own for sure Push the weight up but as a result i've seen such better progress over the last what has been four or five months now mm-hmm. and i think again i think you were just kind of speaking to that
1: yeah i mean i i i know that they talk about this a lot in the evidence-based space and that you know the evidence really points to the fact that you don't need to do a dirty bulk so to speak right and then there's always this context of like but everyone that's really big did a <laughs> dirty bulk at some point right. you know so you're like anecdotally like you kind of do need to do it even though the evidence says that you know you really want to gain it like a couple grams a month or whatever whatever it is right. so um yeah i mean i i just i just believe that dude i don't know like there's a guy named uh paul carter you might follow him he's oh, yeah. uh, on instagram yeah so when i first started training back in the late 90s message boards were just becoming a thing and somehow i got so lucky to stumble across a message board called power and bulk and paul carter was the uh the main kind of bro up in there that was answering questions and and helping educate and i was this you know 15 16 17 year old kid and i was 150 pounds and you know i go in there and i'm just talking about like you know i feel like i have a little fat like i kind of want to cut and, and Paul, his first thing was just like, you're an idiot. Go get big. Like, you know, tell me, <laughs> tell me when you've hit 300 pounds, 400 pounds, 500 pounds on your big lifts and, right. and you weigh 200 pounds and then you can cut, you know. And it, it, it's, it's like bro science and it's anecdote and it's all these things. But it's also the way that people have gotten big for years. And I did it too, man. I, I, went, I literally went from 170 to 200 in four months my first semester at college. I just lifted all the weights and ate all the cafeteria food and hit puberty all at the same time. Right. And I ended up from August to December, I went from 170 to 200. And then I just literally spent the next like few years just refining that 200. Like my body was more or less just 200. And it was a better 200 and then a better 200 and better 200. And that's what it is, man.
0: No, no, I couldn't agree more, dude. And I feel like Again, like, body recomposition is such a cool topic. And, like, Christopher Bearcat was on not too long ago, and we talked about that. It is, like, it's so interesting. But, again, like, past a certain point also, it it's just not, like, where I was, again, or, like, where you're at right now. Like, are you capable of a body recomp that's, like, even over the course of a year you can see measurable progress? Probably not, right? Whereas, like, if you want to keep moving the needle in any one direction, you're going to have to go all in on, like, that I feel. Yeah, as you become more
1: advanced, right? And Chris even talked about that. That was a good episode, by the way. Um <laughs> that means the world. Yeah. Um, no, he, he I think that my issue always with the body recomp stuff, because it seems to be like, you know, regaining traction in the industry a little bit, is it, I like the fact that he caveat caveated that with saying that, you know, it depends on training age, because right, absolutely right. you can recomp as a beginner. You can probably recomp as an intermediate and maybe even a little bit as an early advance, but there definitely comes a point where you're 23 years into training and you've been doing this smart for a really long time. And I don't believe that I would be able to recomp at this point. So
0: you know, right. point made no, exactly. Exactly. So outside of that, uh, effort, not eating enough food, anything else you see as the major mistakes that people are making?
1: I mean, does consistency or adherence need to be mentioned? Cause I would think if someone's like intermediate advanced and cares about their results, then their consistency and their adherence is probably relatively on point, but that would be mistake. Number one, if that's not happening, right? Like you need to actually show up to the gym and do the work. Um, I don't, maybe this is a a touchy one, but I kind of stand in the camp of believing that, most people until they reach a certain point and that certain point is different for everybody but until you reach a certain point, you really don't need to be doing a bunch of isolation movements Interesting. Um, okay. bicep curls, tricep extensions, lateral raises, things like that. Um, I don't think I did a single isolation movement until I already was squatting 350 deadlifting four fifty um, I just think that that you know you can get really strong on the big basics and I think you set yourself up with a bigger base that allows your body to be more receptive right. to the gains from the isolation movements than it would be if you tried to hammer isolation movements before your body was big enough to really be ready for them.
0: That makes sense. So basically you're saying kind of getting your priorities backwards.
1: Yeah. I mean, cause intermediates, especially they, they see all the bodybuilding stuff. Right. right. And like all these guys are like looking yoked and their veins are popping and they have this massive pump from doing curls and, right. and all the things um you know you see them in pushdowns and cable work and like all this stuff but like until you're actually strong working on mind muscle connection and things like that aside from just moving properly like if mind muscle right. connection helps you move more efficiently and more properly then yes yeah, sure focus on it but like you know, I went through the first 10 plus years of my training life and never once thought about mind muscle connection. All I thought was this is heavy, get good positioning and pick the shit up or squat down with it and stand up or press it off my chest or whatever, moving from point A to point B. And then your muscles kind of learn how to move the weight quickly when you focus on moving it quickly. And then the mind muscle connection for me falls into the same category as isolation movements where You know, you can spend a little bit of time focusing on it, but your training age should dictate how much time is spent like that versus how much time is spent
0: on actually like big movements that help you grow and move a lot of weight. Okay. Okay. No, I'd agree with that for sure. I think that some of it kind of ties back to the consistency and adherence. Like I know when I first started lifting, it was straight up just, I'm going to train chest every single day. And then me and the homies are going to do a bunch of bicep curls like we do. Okay. I'm going to curl this till I burn out, pass it to you. All right. When you burn out, pass it back. But I also think that some of that is, like, that's why I fell in love with lifting. So I feel like it's hard to uh, – I 100% agree with what you're coming from, from purely, like, should I have – if I was doing – I wish I would have been doing, like, squats or some shit <laughs> rather than that. But like, also, that's, I, purely from, like, the enjoyment perspective, I think that's big. But I, I, I agree as far as, like, overall time allotted. It probably makes more sense to – I don't know if I would actually program for anyone like, hey, I'm not going to put any isolation work in here just because I think people enjoy it. But yeah, 100% respect where you're coming from there. Um, as far as the mind-muscle connection thing, that's actually an interesting topic to dive into. I know that for me for the longest time I was like, or like I talk clients through this all the time. Like, okay, I can't, I don't feel this movement in my quads. So I need to sub in a different movement that I feel more. And very much towards like where my mindset has shifted is like, okay, so let's focus on, execution like consistency within range of motion controlling the eccentric can be more explosive throughout like the actual eccentric portion or concentric portion of the movement and then like the gains you want will come do you feel like and you've mentioned you feel like mind muscle connection you would kind of put into like the same category as an isolation exercise can you elaborate on that a little bit
1: yeah more I more meant that as far as like depending on your training age it's something that you should focus on more Okay. later in your oh, training you. age and okay. less in your earlier in your training age. Okay. Um, I mean, I also would say that maybe where you were going with this is that it is easier to feel a mind muscle connection in an isolation movement because there's not noise from all the peripheral right. muscles that are being worked alongside of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that makes sense too. I also do think there is a way to focus on mind muscle connection in compound movements for sure. I just don't know that it's practical for people at intermediate level to really make a mind muscle connection on a compound movement, the main focus when right. I think at that point in their training age, the focus should still just be on, like you said, lifting explosively working through a full range of motion and stimulating, you know, those fast twitch muscle fibers. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I would even say like, it wasn't even until the last couple years that I even began to understand what it meant to, to press off my chest with my pecs versus using my chest and my, my shoulders and my triceps, probably triceps more for me. Um, but it didn't matter. Like, it's not like I needed to focus on, you know, when I'm bench pressing with a barbell or with dumbbells at year 10, that I I needed to be focusing on squeezing with my chest. Right. Um, I just need to make sure I was getting a full range of motion and pressing explosively. And my chest was being worked. like my chest was getting sore. My chest grew. um, so now I'm like 23 years in. And now when I bench press with dumbbells, I move my hands to the inside of the dumbbell. So it kind of tilts the bottom side of the dumbbell down a little bit. And I can get more chest out of the movement with a little bit less tricep. But that's literally something I just started doing. Um, right. And I don't think I even would have needed to do it or care about it earlier in the training career.
0: No, no. And that's very, very similar to the kind of the direction I was going with that. I feel like it's so easy to... I know I made this mistake and I talk clients through this a lot where like it's kind of paralysis by, by analysis almost like you're thinking so much about like, fuck, I can't feel this muscle. I can't feel this muscle that you kind of get like you're spinning your wheels. Right. Whereas, and I, in one, like kind of diving into all their stuff about mm-hmm. execution and like maybe we're not focusing so much on the sensation, but like basically are you executing the movement in a manner that Like, are you putting yourself in a position to be successful here? For me, looking at things like that has been so helpful. Like, my bicep curls are such a good example of that. Because for the longest time, I could just never feel my bicep. So it's like, okay, I'm going to curl this up really, really slow and just really try to think about feeling my bicep. Whereas for me, when I was finally like, okay, I'm going to make sure I'm controlling the eccentric. I'm going to take this through a full range of motion every rep. I'm going to curl it up explosively. Oh, shit. Mm -hmm. Okay, all of a sudden, now my biceps feel super disrupted. So for me, that's been a big paradigm shift for sure.
1: I think that uh, the biggest kind of aha moment for me was with taking movements through a full range of motion, understanding that full range of motion meant working through the full stretch position. And I think that that's something that often gets ignored, especially on pulling movements because like pushing movements have like a right. designated stopping point at the bottom right like if you're doing right. an overhead press or a bench press you literally can't go any lower than what, right. what, what, what you can do right. on pulling movements though like especially back work and bicep work you can literally take that bicep down behind the shoulder slightly and get a little bit of a stretch like chris talks about in the three angles of of mm-hmm. bicep where you have the incline curl where you're actually focusing on stretching it. But I feel like, you know, you can actually stretch your bicep a little bit, even in a, in a neutral shoulder position curl, like in a standing nice. dumbbell curl or a standing barbell curl, you can get a little bicep stretch in there too. Um, but even more prominently, like the amount of people that miss that range of motion at the end of uh, a horizontal row or a vertical pull. Um, and they're not like completely depressing the scapula at the bottom, right. letting that lat hang long. And then, you know, learning how to engage lat before arm pulls right. um that stuff is so 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 valuable and increases your connection with the muscle so much to be able to actually feel it stretch out completely and then activate from that stretch position
0: oh percent. and that's if we look at again taking it back to the connection of or this conversation of mind muscle connection if you look at like the muscle that people struggle to feel the most it's almost always back right mm. but i know like it's so rare to see someone do like a dumbbell row and actually let that. Like, okay, you're really going to stretch out your yeah. upper back or same thing with like a barbell bent row, for example. And again, like, I know for me, the longest time it was like, okay, well then I need to figure out how to set this up perfectly on like the single arm, like a one arm step back hammer strength row and match resistance profile. <laughs> then it's like yeah. oh, I just need to make sure I'm actually training this through a full range of motion. And, it's yeah. weirdly simple, but I think for me, very much like the last year, especially kind of bringing it back to all this shit that sounds pretty basic, but truly, I feel like that's really the meat and potatoes of your training.
1: Yeah, for sure, man. I mean, the way that you perform the movements, especially as you become advanced, it dictates everything. Like, one of my big pet peeves, talk, talk about rowing and back movements is. When people row, it doesn't matter whether it's a fixed thing like a pronated barbell or a dumbbell row or whatever. They do that weird row where they come up in here and like the shoulders all up in the ear and the elbows like here. And you're like, they're literally just isolating the rhomboids, the lower traps and the rear delts. And they're completely omitting any lat involvement. So when you finally get people to actually do rows where that elbow kind of sweeps back toward the waistline or the hip a little bit more, that's like a game changer, man. Like stuff like that. Sure. You you can go years and just have like this yoked upper back from all of the way that you've been rowing in shitty form. Right. And then you start actually using your lats to help you row and everything changes, man. It's just it's incredible. So um I think that you know being able to feel your back um is so dependent upon the way in which you're
0: executing the movements. 100 percent man. I feel like that's super helpful. So you've been working with a coach for the first time in a long ass time correct if not ever
1: yeah i've never really had a coach i worked with an olympic lifting coach in 2012 for maybe four to six months but that was the only time i've really ever been coached officially so now it's a uh it's definitely a cool experience so far yeah
0: okay okay and brian Miner, for those who don't know super yep. into like uh, he was on revive stronger's podcast not long ago great debate on the whole. uh progressive volume versus keeping it more static over time and that's something I really wanted to dive into with you man because I know that now you've kind of been on both sides of this like debate of like should you progress volume across the mesocycle versus should we keep it static do you mind kind of just giving us a quick like background and I'm super happy to hop in here as well if you want but quick background on kind of like this back and forth like between like, should you progress volume or should you keep, you keep it static? And then kind of like your experiences over the last couple months with doing both.
1: Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um, should you progress volume or not? Mike Isertel, Renaissance Periodization, the volume landmarks, really smart dude. Right. Groundbreaking concept he came up with. One of the coolest parts I think about his, his kind of volume landmarks thing and he's, he's, he's gone more this direction recently, but using auto-regulation as, as a piece for increasing sets. Right. So I think that that's really like the main thing. When you actually get into the nitty gritty between whether you increase sets or don't, I think that the two camps are a lot closer than they think they are. Once Mike starts using auto-regulation as that keyword, because his concept used to be that, you know, you would start at a nominal number, you would increase X amount of sets each week, you would end up at a higher number. Right. And then you do it again. And it was relatively simple. His rationale was that there's the minimum effective volume, the minimum adaptive volume or maximum adaptive volume and maximum recoverable volume. And that after a deload, you're resensitized to the stimulus. And therefore you need to start at a super low amount, uh, which makes sense because you may get sore quicker. Um, you may be more sensitive to getting a pump. Things like that, subjective right. senses of fatigue. Um, and then as you go through, adaptive resistance kicks in. There's the repeated bout effect. So the minimal effective volume increases over time each week, potentially, is, is Mike's argument that it increases each week. And that you need to increase sets to then keep up with the adaptive volume threshold. And then eventually fatigue begins to climb, and you reach your maximum recoverable volume where you deload and do it all over again. Right. That would be that philosophy, right? So the other philosophy or approach is that you really don't need to increase volume because it messes up your diagnostics. And that seems to be the main argument coming out from the static volume camp is that it just becomes too hard to use training as a diagnostic tool as to whether you're improving or not. Right. And Mike has Mike has really really good counter arguments to that too. It's, it's like when you listen to it, you're like, Oh man, Eric and Brian make a really good point here. And then Mike comes back and you're like, Ooh, but that's a really good point too. And then they come back and it's back and forth. And you're as a listener, you're just like so titillated on the edge of your seat. Just (laughs) like, what are they going to say next? You know? Um, but I spent, uh, over a year, probably almost two years doing the volume landmarks approach. Right. And, um, I liked it a lot. What I ended up finding as I went on with the approach was that, via the mechanism of auto-regulation, which is Mike's big thing now as far as determining when to increase sets and things like that, that my volume landmarks weren't jumping nearly as much as they do in Mike's examples. Yeah. And sure. one of the thing, yeah. Well, one of the things that Mike always talks about is that as you become more advanced, your volume landmarks get a lot closer. So maybe you move from like 14 to 18 sets instead of like 10 to 20 or something like that. Right. But then you look at Mike's Instagram and look at his workouts and that dude is moving from like eight to like 22 sometimes. Oh yeah. Or like he has like ridiculously wide rep ranges. So I struggle to, to figure out exactly how he can say that for an advanced person, that's the range that the ranges get smaller, but then you look at him and he's super fucking advanced and his range is really big
0: on some movements.
1: Right. Um, so I think that interesting. Do you have any thoughts on that?
0: I'd agree, man. I mean, like from my own experience with it, because again, this is exactly what I'm doing right now. Like we progress, we progress volume across the mesocycle, but it's never like, it's like, okay, maybe week one, I hit three sets of squats. Week five, right before the deload, I hit five sets, right? Yeah. And it's never like, I don't think I've ever seen anything jump by more than three sets. And I very much for me feel like, like, this is about like, okay, I'm, I'm pushing it this week. Like I'm definitely like pushing my landmarks here. I, I agree though with Mike. I've, I, that is one thing to me too. That's been confusing about it because when you see like his jumps, like an application with anyone I've seen outside of him, it doesn't seem like it's like, and I know they even brought this up. Like, Hey, we use this example of going from 10 to 20, but in reality it's probably not that big, but with him, it does seem like it's pretty big jumps on uh, certain movements for sure. Certain not, muscle groups.
1: Um, so that was one thing I I thought interesting. And then as I went through this in my own training, I was finding that my jumps were more like 14 to 18 or 13 to 17 or something like that. The other thing I began finding and I didn't, for the first year, I didn't do it this way. And then the second year I did, I, I, I kind of stopped increasing sets on compound movements. Um, I, I relegated more of the increases to isolation movements because I felt like increasing on compound movements was providing two negatives. It was becoming mentally exhausting to the point that I wasn't even looking forward to sessions. I was kind of dreading them. Right. Um, and second, I was getting really, really fatigued from them. Like I could literally feel the CNS fatigue building up and it began to feel kind of like how I would feel when I was competing in CrossFit. And I would be unable to like get up off the couch and like want to go walk around and like play with my kids and stuff like that. Right. Um, And that to me, like, I don't know if that's optimal. Like even if you're, even if the argument is like, you know, you just have to deal with that bro because it's optimal, you know? Like, I don't know if that is optimal. I don't know if you should be so crushed from training that you like don't want to, you don't have the energy to like get up off the couch and go play with your kid. I don't know. Um, So for me, it just didn't work. But increasing isolation movements did work, Um, so I would increase cable movements and low fatigue movements and things like that, and that seemed to work quite well for me. I also uh, think that from the volume landmarks, the piece that I am struggling with actually, let me let me maybe I can talk. I'll talk about Brian's method first, and then we can kind of compare and contrast. For sure. So with with Brian's method my coach currently we have an intro week where the volume is a little bit lower. And I would honestly just compare this to Mike's MEV. Like I have one less set of most movements. The RIR is three or four instead of one to three. And, um, it's, it's kind of, yeah, like an intro week of sorts. So that was the beginning of the meso cycle. And then we literally didn't change anything going forward from there. Uh, the, we added about one set from intro week to each movement and we got one or two reps closer to failure. And then it just stayed for like the next four weeks. And, uh, and the idea was that maintaining RIR or proximity to failure, you just kind of go through and you take a rep where you can and, you know, you write it down and, he analyzes it and we look at the trend and when things begin subjectively to feel like they're breaking down and that could be joints begin hurting. So like I began having a small elbow pain uh, at about week four and I had a small knee thing at week four as well. And then on top of that, um, I was starting to feel mentally kind of just like, beaten down by the training in the sense that like, I wasn't as motivated to do it. Um, I was still progressing physically, which was wild to me. So, um, I didn't expect to see consistent progress for four weeks. Once we jumped out of that intro week, I didn't expect to be able to add, you know, say I had four working sets. I might add one to two reps across all four sets. So a couple of the sets stayed the same. And then I'd take a rep here. I'd take a rep there. Um, and I was able to do that for pretty much all four weeks on pretty much every movement and I was really, really surprised by that because speaking diagnostically, I never felt like I was able to really see that as clearly with the volume landmarks approach. Right. Because you have to wait almost a full mesocycle to see whether you were making progress. Like you compare microcycle one to microcycle one, right? right. Or microcycle yeah. two to microcycle two. So I would see the changes, but I would see them five weeks, six weeks later. Right. And It was cool to be able to see that even at my stage that I was, you know, being able to add a rep here or add a rep there. So that was cool. And then we basically just kind of found that my fatigue was high viewed, uh, based on those subjective measures. And we took a deload. Right. Um, and then the deload has been weird. So two things have happened in the the deload that have have made me, I, I need to talk to my coach about these and see what his, his thoughts are. But, um, his deloads are different than mine. He cuts volume in half. Okay. But basically keeps everything else the same. Um, so like, so like
0: high.
1: RIR drops by one, one rep to okay. failure. So if I was at two RIR, I go to three RIR. Um, but basically the loads are the same and it's just the volume that's cut in half. Um, he didn't even cut RIR at all on isolation movements. He just right. cut volume. Okay. Um. So to me, maybe it was because I had this expectation that I was about to have like an easy week of training, you know, because right. the way that expectations are everything, right? Like if you go into right. something and you're like, this is going to be the hardest week of training ever, then even if it's really fucking hard, you might actually not think in retrospect that it was that hard. Right. But like I went into this deload thinking in my head that I was about to get like a deload that I'm used to, which is like everything six to 12, six to 10 reps shy of failure. Right. You're just kind of like going through the motions. There's no like. You don't have to do a ramp up set because the first set is the first warm up set is your work set at a deload. You know, that's what I was used to. And instead I have this like training week that is still really fucking hard. It's just shorter. Right. Um, so I don't necessarily subjectively feel like I'm recovering. Um, but at the same time, the other thing that I realized is that I'm actually getting equal to or better Pumps and muscle stimulation from doing half the work. It's interesting. Very interesting. I almost think of it akin to like what Jeff Alberts talks about with how he does like you know two sets of chest and two sets of something else and two sets of something else. Like he can literally have an entire workout of six sets and be like you know deposit another penny in the bank, like working hard. Right. And and that's kind of how it feels. Like it's weird to me that I like this morning I did uh, two sets of flat dumbbell and two sets of incline barbell. And usually it's four and four. Right. And I finished that session and I was just like, I just did four sets and my chest is blown up. So there's a part of me that wonders, are those additional sets actually beneficial or are they just making inroads into fatigue? Um, And I think using Mike's volume landmarks approach you would look at the fact that i'm getting a gnarly pump from two sets of something and you would say okay you're getting a gnarly pump you're getting f- fatigue in the muscle and maybe some minor soreness the next day that's the right amount of volume for you right but i'm pretty sure i'm going to talk to brian about that and he's going to be like yeah but you were progressing on four sets and you know you were you were progressing you're 23 years into training and you were progressing let's not fuck with that
0: right right um yeah go ahead that's a that's a hard one, man, because it also, it's like, what, what are we looking at specifically to measure? Like, like you said, like, okay, I have a crazy pump. I have a little bit of soreness. So like, those are the only two proxies we're using to measure, like, are you progressing or not? Like, it sounds like you're crushing it, but again, that's so hard to like, but what if I did more? Could I be accomplishing even more? I feel like it's so hard to just leave that on the table.
1: Or if I was doing less, would I have less fatigue? And then therefore I'm maximizing the stimulus to two sets <laughs> and now I can increase strength even faster because my fatigue is lower and i'm still maximizing out the subjective
0: variables right so I, I I don't know i i don't have the answers for sure that's that is very interesting and i'm surprised that the whole the whole style of deloading that's when i trained with i worked with the strength guys for a bit and that's very yep. similar to like how they would go about a deload as well like it was just volume was cut in half the same thing like you were still hitting like a one RIR or even like zero to one RIR sometimes, and I remember same as you're saying going into it as fuck like this is this doesn't <laughs> feel like a deload, but also by by the end of the week I was always like hitting PRs on shit, which was yeah, like that. I feel like recovery would still come up, so it was for sure like I, personally that's not my favorite way to deload, just because I like to have like the mental. uh a bit of a mental break, but super interesting just the different ways people go about it. So for you going forward, do you think you're going to, like as far as DLOs go, do you think you'll keep how you've traditionally gone about it or like pull some of this into your own programming?
1: I'm not ready yet to, to change the way that I program for my general programs and my, and my, my one-on-one clients. Right. Um, I still personally find too much value in the flushing fatigue model. Of you know six plus RIR and half the volume and cutting loads down and things like that. Um, so I would think I, I have a six month uh, agreement with Brian. So I plan to see this thing through and right. let let him. I'm I'm letting him lead. I'm putting my trust in him because I want to learn that method of training and right. see what see what aspects of it I can then take and apply to my own training and then that of the people that I train. Right. Um, it, to expand on that a little bit thus far, so I'm literally just over a, a mesocycle into to training with Brian, so I don't have the full six-month picture of working through, you know, a full macro cycle yet, but um, even before working with Brian, I kind of came up with a way that I personally like to program that meshes the volume landmarks way with more of the static volume approach. Okay. And this is kind of the way that I approach my general programs the last probably six months to a year or something as well. Okay. Um, and that is that we deload in the way that, that I mentioned. So we, we do a full fatigue flush deload. We don't stay too close to failure. Right. Then we do have a, an intro week. So – the intro week is more akin to that of like the way that, that Brian and Eric would do it uh, versus, you know, trying to specifically go MEV. It's just a little bit less volume than what we do for the work weeks. And then we have relatively static volume across the, the mesocycle for four or five weeks, whatever it is, with an occasional increase in volume, maybe on an isolation movement or a cable movement okay. um, based on subjective measures such as, you know, cause if you're doing a cable lateral raise, like maybe you need four sets this week and you did three last week or whatever, that's fine. And then I really, really, really like one aspect of the volume landmarks approach. And that is the, the increase in, or decrease, I guess, in RIR each week. I really, I really like working closer to failure. And I've talked to Brian about this and he's explained so many different ways why that's not necessary et cetera. And, and I, I understand his logic, but just as a personal preference and for that to relay a method of training to the public, that makes sense. I think working closer to failure each week just makes sense. And the main reason being that people need to know where failure is. And even if you completely mess up your mesocycle and you start too easy, It's just a self-correcting problem because by the end, if you hit failure, it doesn't matter. You still hit failure and now your fatigue is really high and then you can go deload and the next muscle cycle, you just know better and your, your progression looks different. So while I don't necessarily think that volume needs to be increased via sets week to week, I really struggle not to program increases in proximity to failure each week. And I can't imagine that I won't continue doing that going forward um but i have another four months with brian so we'll see how it goes
0: that is so interesting man because that was something i wanted to touch on as well keeping the RIR static that's for me personally as well i feel like just progressing across like your training phase to like we start at three rr we end up at zero to one rr basically that in itself just speaks to so much like just mentally you go in you know like okay i should be pushing for another rep here like and i think that's I think for, again, for like intermediate advanced lifters, because also like you could easily go in, do the same weight for the same reps for months. And that shit would always feel hard, you could probably always tell yourself like, oh yeah, that was yep. a two RIR, right? Yep. But also you could very easily not make progress for a long time like that. So I think that like having that, similar to what you said, I think having that progression just gets people in the mindset of like, okay, I'm getting closer to failure. I should very much push at add a rep or maybe a little bit of load here, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think Brian's argument back would just be that it wrecks it it, it it decreases the likelihood that you can use training performance as a diagnostic tool. But my argument back to that would be that yes, it's true if you did 105 for nine, that may be the same as a hundred by 10, right We don't we don't really know, but then the next week, if you go 110 and get eight, and then 115 and get seven, like eventually, like as long as you're perceptively working closer to failure, you could even, if depending on your rep range, say the rep range is like eight to 12, and you did that 10, ten, nine, eight, seven thing, then fuck it. The last week, go back to 100 pounds the week that you go to failure and rep that shit out until you can't do anymore. Right. And and now you know whether you made progress or not. So right. And also I think that subjectively you can tell like, Like, you know that if like 100 by 10 that first week is like two RIR and then you get 105 by nine and you're like, that's two, but maybe it could have been three. Like, like you kind of can tell whether you're making progress in there. So maybe like precisely week to week, it's not as good of a diagnostic tool. But I think that over the course of time, as you learn yourself as an athlete and as you, I think the value of working closer to failure and hitting failure is, is more important than being able to use training week to week as a diagnostic tool.
0: I I agree with that. And again, I feel like even from like actually being able to measure how close you truly are to failure, most people just don't actually know where that is.
1: Yeah, for sure. And then this way just ensures that you hit failure. So like people all the time ask me, they're like, well, what if like, you know, like I use the example, but what if, what if they start the cycle too light? And it's supposed to be a four week mesocycle, but they started too light. Then who cares? If we make it an eight week mesocycle. Like you just add weight every week and eventually you'll hit failure and then your mesocycle's over. So right. it just, it, it makes, it just makes the whole process much easier on the coach.
0: And I think more productive for the athlete. No, no, I'd agree, man. I like that. Anything else major you feel like you have pulled from working with Brian so far or any major shifts that you've made in like your own philosophy around programming in the last six to 12 months?
1: good question um brian has been using cluster sets with me
0: i I asked about that that's super interesting
1: yeah so i never did these man i always was a straight set kind of guy except when we're in like a metabolite phase and then it's like a four to five week period where maybe we do some like supersets drop sets stuff like that but he's been using cluster sets with me a lot and um I really, really dig them i uh I've never felt tension in muscles like I do doing these cluster sets. Um, so essentially the idea it's it's I think it's based more it's kind of like myo rep-y, but not quite right. so basically right. the approach is the approach is that you do a a feeder set that's fifteen to twenty reps, okay and everything's to one r i r because they're generally like low fatiguing movements right um, so fifteen to twenty rep feeder set, and then you rest about thirty seconds do another set to one RIR, rest 30 seconds, do another set to one RIR. And then you hit three failure points. I mean, you're not actually at failure, but three fatigue points right. in a matter of three minutes. And um, all with a relatively heavy load. I mean, heavy-ish. Like the other day, I hit 21 reps of dumbbell flies with 50 pounds, which was nuts to me because when I started the the meso cycle with Brian, my my thing was, I think I had my first feeder set with the fifties was 14 or 15 reps. Okay, okay. So I, I, yeah, when I first started, it was like 14 or 15 reps on the feeder set. And then I would go like seven, five or seven, six on the two cluster sets. And now I hit 21 on the the priority set. And then I think I went eight, seven on the, the cluster sets. So like everything was improving. Like the main feeder set was improving as well as you know, I was improving my ability to to manifest strength under fatigue too. And uh that movement specifically, like the kind of dumbbell fly hybrid where I'm it's a little okay. pressy, but it's mostly out wide. Uh that movement, man, getting into that third cluster set on that one, it's just like a ripping tension through the pecs that I literally have never felt in 20 plus years of training is nuts. Um so those have been super cool. We've used them on a lot of rear delt and lateral raise movements. We've used them on push downs and tricep extensions and bicep curl variations. Um, so yeah, I'm a huge fan of that. He's, uh, he's had me doing rack pull-ups instead of regular pull-ups. Okay. And, uh, I'm not, I I do like the rack pull-up. I think it has value for a lot of people, but I'm really, really good at pull-ups Yeah, and I, I would rather just do pull-ups I think. Right. Um, but, you know, it's, it's all part of the process. He also had me doing uh, G, G8 uh, Nordics, uh, Nordic uh, hamstring curls. Okay, yeah. And those are really, really, really hard. Um, <laughs> I had I had no idea what I was in for because I've always done them on the GHR. Right. And the GHR is much easier because you can push up against the pad and brace your knees into the other pad and almost get some leverage out of it. Right. Um, but doing those things on the ground, man, just completely nuts. If, uh, if you haven't seen the video of Tyreek Hill doing 10 of them. I saw that actually. That's crazy. savage. Yeah. So savage. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think the cluster sets are probably the main thing that I've taken away. And I've already started inputting those into some of my programming because it uh, it's a quick dose of effective programming without having to take a ton of time. And I think especially in, uh, in our world right now, less
0: time for relatively equal stimulus is, is quite important. So can you talk us your application of that? Like, again, it sounds like it's basically like you could plug in this essentially like where you plug in myo reps. Is that true? So yeah, I would say it's the same as myo reps or drop sets
1: or something like that. Um, kind of the same philosophy of, you know, continuing to work a muscle under fatigue. The way that I would use it though is like, or the way that Brian seems to be using it is like every, uh, PM session that I have, it starts with a straight set movement for a muscle group. So an example might be uh, like we start with uh, tricep extensions, a uh, skull crusher of some sort, and we'll hit like three sets, of eight to 12 heavy. And then instead of going in and doing three sets of push downs after that, we just do a cluster set. So it's one feeder set plus two clusters and you hit three failure points the same way that you would if you were doing three straight sets, you're just not resting for excessive amount of time in between each set.
0: Huh? okay super interesting and then as far as like muscle groups are you going to so are you going to do this like multiple bicep movements per week for example or would you like hey i'm gonna have three straight sets here and then maybe i'm going to choose one bicep movement one chest movement etc i'm sorry i don't understand the question so as far as like application of this so let's yeah. say okay i have okay. i'm going to do like two different bicep curl variations per week would, could, yep. would you say like okay, I can I can do cluster sets for both of these movements, or like right, maybe right. okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna limit this. I'm gonna like implement this like one muscle group per week. I'm gonna implement this technique with. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Um, well, I can tell you the way Brian's doing it with me, and uh, we have in our microcycle we rotate through twice. So it's basically like a kind of a um, a mixed up push pull legs thing. So it's like push pull legs, push pull legs. Um, so on the first day, we do the three straight sets of skull crushers, and then we do the cluster sets on the pushdowns. Right, right. The next time through, we do straight sets on the pushdowns, and then we
0: do the cluster sets on the skull crushers. That's super interesting. Okay,
1: and I really like that. That's actually a good question that you asked because it made me kind of uh, think about how I would be in putting into programming and. That's probably how I would do it too, because I really like that approach where right. you get a you get a diagnostic tool by using the movement in straight sets once a week, but then you also get the metabolic effect of using it in cluster sets
0: in the same microcycle. Okay. okay. But you're performing it second, right? The cluster sets right. always after the straight sets. Right, right. Okay. Okay. That makes complete sense. Do you have a little bit more time here, man? We're already at For sure. Yeah, let's go for it. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. So you're training twice a day right now, right? Yep. Tell us about that. What's the thought process behind that? Why not just once a day?
1: It's mostly about being able to maximize effort in each individual session. Um, I I feel like I can't do much more than you know six to eight hard sets before I feel like I want to leave the gym. Um, right. But the amount of volume that I have to do is such that I would have to do 12 to 16 sets in one session. Um, So it really is a product of necessity. Okay. But it also fits really well into my life. Um, As somebody that works from home and has kids, it's a lot easier for me to find 30 to 40 minutes twice a day than it is for me to find 75 to 90 minutes once a day. Okay. Uh, but I dude, to be honest, it's so enjoyable to train this way. Like, I can't even tell you the amount of times in the last years of training that I would finish, you know, back squats, literally four sets of back squats and be like, I'm smashed right now. Like, how am I supposed to go do hamstring curls and calf raises and leg press and like all these other things. Right. But imagine this beautiful world where you can do like back squats in the AM and then, you know, back squats and stiff-legged deadlifts or something like three sets right. of each in the AM and then you're done. And then you can come back four or five hours later and do your curls and your leg extensions in the evening and not have the fatigue there holding you back from the from the back squats and, and stiff-legged deadlifts. So um, it's been a godsend for me, man. I I feel like my training has improved so much. I'm able to put so much more focus and energy into the isolation movements that were just kind of getting like tacked on at the end. Right. And I feel significantly less post-workout fatigue, like finishing, you know, a 12 to 16 set session of legs. You're just dead. Like you can't move the rest of the day.
0: Right.
1: But when you do six sets and then you get a four or five hour break to go eat some food, and come back, you can just kind of keep functioning and live life. And it's got very little impact on like the
0: quality of my life uh, as a result of training. Huh? That's super interesting. I, something I've been thinking about for a bit. I'm at ask Steve about that. And I know that's how he trains as well. So I'm sure he would be open to it, but no, I feel it, man. Like I'm in my, I'm in my metabolite phase right now. And I'm also in the last week of accumulation before the deload. So it's like yesterday was my, <laughs> quad, yesterday was my quad dominant lower body day. And it was like, okay, four sets of high bar squats. And I was like, I gotta make sure I'm literally like I have a good setup here. I feel okay dumping these. So a couple of them I I like literally like which of course I'm not always training like that, but I wanted to make sure I was truly hitting hitting like figured out where zero R was for me. So I was dumping right. those. Then it was like uh Sissy squats to zero R R I R superseded with like a heel elevated uh dumbbell front squat. And then after that I had four sets of each of those. Oh, dude, now I still gotta do all this. So I that does that sounds nice. It's so nice, dude.
1: It's so nice. And so, uh, one of the things that, that I always do is I make sure the isolations are in the evening. And I think that that's, that's the critical factor too. Cause the last thing you want to do is, you know, do these hard compounds and then have this anxiety about having to do another hard compound like right. four hours later. But when you know that like you get your, your squats done, you say you did your back squats in the AM and then you're just like, okay, I have sissy squat, super set with heels, elevated goblet squat in the PM or something like that. Um, But uh, interestingly, along the same lines, when I constructed my two-a-day training before working with Brian, when it came to legs, I always tried to, instead of separating it by compounds and isolations, I almost took it further. And I was like, all right, I'm going to do all my quad compounds in the AM and then my hamstring isolations in the PM. And then the next time through it would be hamstring compounds in the AM and quad isolations in the PM. Right.
0: Um,
1: But the way that Brian has me doing it is he doesn't have any um, care about the muscle group that's being worked. He more is just like, Hey, compounds in the AM isolations in the PM. And that was a weird change for me because I had this notion in my head that, you know, once you finish tearing a muscle group up, that the recovery process has began, you know, muscle Mm -hmm. damage is there, you know, now you eat the food and you recover he was like, no, dude, like, don't even worry about that. Like by four hours later, you're totally fine to hit quads again. So, so it was weird to go from like, okay, I have high bar back squats with my heel elevated in the AM. And then in the PM, I have like three sets of gnarly sissy squats, you know? Right. And you can just feel, it's weird. Cause you can feel like the tension almost still residual from the back squats right. four hours earlier when you go into the sissy squats. So that's been kind of unique. And, and I still like, I don't know which I like better, but it's been interesting and,
0: and kind of cool to, to experiment with doing that way as well. It makes complete sense though, man. I feel like even from like against beginning of yesterday, I know like going into a leg curl, I, like, I can't even like fucking walk right now. It's gonna it's super hard to be very, very intentional. Like I probably could get a lot out of those a couple hours later. I mean, so super interesting, super insightful conversation uh, for you. What's the next piece for the basement gym, dude? What else are you adding there? Oh man, good question. So I actually I ordered a leg extension leg curl machine did, plate okay. loaded.
1: Okay. I ordered it in May, and it's still on back order. Like every month. Like first it was like you're gonna get it in July. Then it was like you're gonna get it in August. Now it's like you're gonna get it in November. So <laughs> I don't know when I'm gonna get it, but the that's literally the last thing that I can get. I think it's um, it's oh. I just bought a safety squat bar and it arrived two days ago. It arrived two days ago. So I get to use it tomorrow for my, my, my squat session. Um, I've never used one before ever. So I'm really, yeah, I I mean, I just fucked around with it when it arrived two days ago and I did some, some empty bar squats just to see what it felt like. But no, I've never done a work set with a safety squat bar before. Uh, but I hate, the way the back squat bar feels with my, I have a torn labrum on my right side Okay. Um, from 2012. So I hate the way that back squat feels. It just right. feels like I'm always like lopsided. Right. Um, so I'm super excited to use the safety squat bar. And then the leg extension leg curl machine will be my last piece. And I can't fit anything else in there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I feel it. My garage is filling up pretty quickly as well. You'll to let me know how you like that leg curl leg extension when it shows up. I've been torn on like, should I get a plate loaded one or just like drop the money for an actual selectorized one? Because I've, I've never mm. used like a plate loaded, um, and I know the resistance profile is a little bit different. You have to, you have to let me know how you like that. But
1: well, you know Jeff Alberts uses the the leg extension, leg curl is plate loaded, and that dude is yoked. So uh, I think it's fine. Okay. Um, he. He actually seems to be able to get like a much better stretch in his quads with the machine he has than I've ever gotten on a leg extension, really? um, like a commercial gym leg extension. Yeah, I mean, his, his, the thing like carries his momentum like all the way back. So it looks like his, his quads are like this okay. and then going forward – Whereas I feel like usually I get down to like vertical and then it's right back up again, you know? So he's getting like a full deep stretch at the bottom of that leg extension. So yeah, I'll let you know how it goes. Okay. Where do you order yours from? Fitness factory outlet.
0: Okay. Okay. So you don't know. I can
1: send you the link if you want, but again, after
0: the podcast is over, but (laughs) anyways, dude, this has been super fun. I appreciate it. I appreciate you taking so much time. Um, before I let you go here, just tell the listeners where they can find you and anything you'd like to plug.
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, Evolved Training Systems, you can search Instagram for it or uh, or the internet, Google it. I'm Brian Borstein, so that's my Instagram handle, but you'll also find me with Evolved Training Systems. Um, we have a bunch of daily programs, $29 a month at Evolved, um, physique-style stuff, as well as some more hybrid functional stuff. And then Paragon Training Methods. Has a dope Facebook community. We have like 2,500 members in there. Um, Partnership with Lori Christine King. So you get kind of like some nutrition coaching as well as great training programming with that model. And uh, those programs are 49 bucks a month for the most part. And uh, that's life, man. Appreciate appreciate the
0: opportunity. Absolutely, man. This has been super fun. I will link all that up in the show notes. And again, thanks for coming on, brother. Thanks.